Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Upbeat Live. My name is Aurni Ingolfsson. I'm the head of artistic planning at the Iceland Symphony Orchestra. And it is my pleasure to also welcome here with me for the first 15 minutes, I promise not to hold you any longer because you have other things to do, uh, the conductor of tonight's program, who is also the composer of one of the pieces on tonight's program, Daniel Bjarnason. Daniel, you have been involved with the LA Phil for, for quite a few years, and uh, obviously the, the staff here at the LA Phil has done a fantastic job of creating this Reykjavik festival, uh, but it might not have happened or it might not have happened at this time if it hadn't been for your involvement. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with the orchestra. Um, is this on? Can you hear me? Oh. Um, so I guess it all started around 2010 or 11 when um, I released an album called Processions. And, um, and I think that album got into the hands of John Adams, um, who then passed it on to Chad Smith. And, uh, <laughs> and, and through that, I was then invited to uh, come here. And they played a piece from that album called Boda String, uh, which is a piece for cello. Uh, solo cello and uh, orchestra uh, that I actually wrote for Sayun Thorstensotir, the Icelandic cellist who will be performing in, uh, in one of the pieces tonight. Um, and for that same concert, they asked me to write another piece called Overlight Earth. And, um, and since that first visit, um, I guess we've, uh, we've kept in good talk, I've kept in good contact with the people here at the LA Phil. I've always loved coming here and they've been incredibly supportive of, uh, of me and my work and, and commissioned, uh, they then commissioned another piece called Blow Bright, which, uh, which uh, Gustavo Dudmil conducted and they took on tour. And, uh, and now I'm writing a new uh, violin concerto, which will premiere uh, this August at the Hollywood Bowl with a Finnish violinist called Pekka Kusisto. Um, so it's an ongoing relationship and it's of course uh, incredibly wonderful uh, to have such a relationship with this uh, great orchestra and the amazing people who work there. Uh, coming back to this festival, Rikik Festival, um, that idea probably came up, uh, I don't even know how many years ago, two, three, maybe even four years ago, uh, when Chad started talking about this. And I remember that Chad and Deborah Borda flew into Reykjavik um, a few years ago and um, and officially sort of t told me that they wanted to do this and asked me if I would help them uh, make this happen, create a festival focused on Icelandic music and especially the Reykjavik music scene, uh, which, which uh, they had become very interested in. Um, so, and I, I said, uh, yes, and here we are today. <laughs> and the, the sort of heading of tonight's program is Contemporary Iceland. Uh, this isn't a sort of historical survey of Icelandic music. It's very much sort of focusing on what is happening right now. There are co-commissions, there are new pieces. Tonight has a, has a world premiere and two US premieres, I think. So it's, it's very much sort of anchored in now. Well, that was one of the things we decided pretty early on that we wanted to do with this festival was to not, like you say, not make it an historic oversight uh, of Icelandic music for the last 50 years or something, but rather try to create this uh, snapshot of Reykjavik today. 
So any of the concerts that are happening here this week and these 10 days are really something that you could, you know, find uh, in Reykjavik today or, or any given week somewhere in Iceland. Uh, maybe not the Sigurós and L.A. Phil one, that might be <laughs> hard, but, but, um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's really a, a sort of a, a contemporary view of, of Icelandic music. Mm. Maybe since we're sort of at the beginning of this festival, we're here hearing uh, chamber orchestra pieces tonight and then bigger orchestra pieces this weekend. Um, maybe you could just sort of take a minute to, to maybe get a broad overview of what is, what is Icelandic music and what is this Icelandic music scene that everyone is talking about? Are there, are there defining characteristics of Icelandic music? So, so just briefly? Yeah, just briefly. <laughs> um, well, I think, uh, I guess I would say this, that it's, um, I'm often asked this in, in interviews, uh, like what is it about Iceland? Why are there so many musicians coming from Iceland? And, and not even just musicians, also artists. And, and uh, what is it about this small island that has so few people? And it's always a little bit hard to answer, but I guess it's a, it's a mix of things. And one of the things that we want to do with this festival is in some way answer that question by just showing it um, instead of trying to explain what it is but definitely one of the things I would say one of the first things that come to mind is there there are um, maybe not very clear distinctions between um, between genres uh, people generally don't t tend to box themselves too much in. They're very open to uh, collaborations, working across genres, working with other forms of uh, other art forms. Um, also, it's a small place, so the proximity plays a big role in that. People tend to know each other. People tend to be open to uh, working together. Maybe there's a certain attitude involved as well of sort of just making things happen yourself. Uh, because in a small place, it's, it's sometimes easier to make things happen. The, that you, it would be harder in a, in a bigger society. And um, yeah, I suppose there are lots of other things at play as well. I should emphasize, I mean, for those of you who maybe aren't aware, I mean, Iceland is a fairly big place geographically speaking. It's about 40,000 square miles, I think, which is roughly the size of Portugal. It's roughly the size of Indiana, if you want the, a comparison from the states. But the population, the total population of the island is about 330,000, which is roughly the population of Richmond, Virginia, or Anaheim, if you want the California equivalent. Um, so it's a fairly large place with a fairly small population. And as, as Daniel said, I mean, everyone sort of knows everyone. So it's easy to, to get projects going, I suppose. Um, Iceland also has a very short tradition of this sort of traditional Western classical music. Uh, the first time an orchestra ever played, a symphony orchestra ever played in Iceland was in 1926. Um, and so I'm wondering if maybe this sort of contributes to, I read an interview with Esa Pekasalonen last week where he was uh, describing sort of his uh, views of, of the pieces that he will be conducting later this week. And he said he didn't see a common aesthetic in these Icelandic works, but what he did sort of experience as a common thread was a sense of freedom. Um, 
So I'm wondering if maybe as a composer, do you, do you feel that you're unburdened by history because you have this, <laughs> you know, you don't, have, you don't have Beethoven yeah. or, or Debussy on your shoulders all the time? No, I think that is, that is right. Uh, of course, Iceland is situated in the North Atlantic, sort of halfway between uh, America and, and Europe. And um, I think that is also, that has played a big role that we really tend to get our influences from both sides. And like you say, the history of music making um, is not very long. The Iceland Symphony Orchestra was founded in 1950. Um, so there is, uh, if you go to, say, Germany, um, the composers there are, are maybe still a little bit dealing with the composers that came before them, or well, dealing with or thinking about them. But in Iceland, we don't have so many of those composers and, all, and that, that history. So we sort of have a, maybe a bit more of a distance that gives us freedom to just pick and choose and, you know, don't become too dogmatic in, in the approach. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your piece tonight. It's called Ek Ken Dinag, and it's fairly recent, from 2014, I think. This is a piece I wrote for, um, for a, a concert in, uh, in the Netherlands, actually, in Holland, for the, the Netherlands Kammerchor, the Dutch chamber choir, and, um, and a group, a reed quintet called Califax. And um, you may find it strange that the text of this, so it's a piece for chorus and, and reed quintet, and the text of this work is, is uh, in Afrikaans, which is a language that I don't actually speak. Um, but this text was presented to me by uh, the Califax members and the, the sort of theme of this concert was Far From Home. And um, it's by a, a South African poet called Elizabeth Abers, uh, who, who moved to and lived most of her life in Amsterdam, but always wrote uh, her poetry, most of it in, in, still in Afrikaans, which is of course related, closely related to, uh, to Dutch, but still in a different language. So it was actually interesting for me, and went, it played well with this theme to, to look at this poem, and, I've, and I learned what all the words meant. I, I understood all the words, and I've, I understand the meaning of the poem, and I had the translation. So, and then I wrote music for it, um, and it was this interesting interplay between feeling very close to this poem because of the music I had written to it and how much I had thought about it, but at the same time having this... Uh, distance to it because you, when you don't speak a language you can never have that um, automatic just connection with, with, with a poem so, so it was a bit of this sort of both things but uh, that's, the piece, that's the piece I wrote it's called uh, I Know the Night or Kendi Nach and it's a very it's quite a dark melancholy piece I, I mean it's sort of a, a vision of the night that isn't very romantic I mean it's not the sort of Nocturne of Chopin or Claire de Lune or something something very romantic. It's it's about the loneliness of the night. I think right. It is. It's about uh, for for me in a way. It's about coming coming through a hardness maybe or a, mm. or a difficult time. It's about knowing. She talks about knowing the inside of the night, having explored the night, uh, and the night could also, I guess, be replaced by darkness in this way having explored that inside out, so it really seems like she's, uh, you know, this feeling maybe of, of uh, 
of knowing a dark place or going through something, some kind of darkness in your life, or however that can be a, an image for for something like that. But uh, yeah, it's right. It's not a, it's not sort of a nocturnal, um, starry night. Right. Right. Um, well, I promised I would let you go right. because you, as I said, you have other things to do. But thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you. And we look forward to tonight. Now, there are five pieces on the program, and Daniel has just explained one of them uh, to us. I'll sort of go through the other ones in order. The program starts with a piece for solo snare drum by an Icelandic composer called Ausketl Mausson, who is, he's the oldest composer of the ones we will hear tonight, and it is the oldest piece on the program, uh, written in 1984. Um, there aren't very many pieces, I suppose, for solo snare drum, and this has become actually very popular among percussionists. I was just told before I came on stage here that it is on the audition list for the LA Philharmonic. So if you want to be a percussionist in the LA Philharmonic, you need to know this piece. Um, he, as I said, he wrote it in 1984, and the title is Prim, which means prime in Icelandic. And the idea is he takes the first 15 prime numbers, so 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, etc., and creates rhythmic patterns out of these numbers using 30-second notes as the basic unit, and then he, he turns this into rhythmic patterns. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's quite an effective piece, I must say. It's sort of like a, a fanfare for, for snare drum at the, at the opening of the, of the concert. Uh, and as I said, it's become... Uh, one of his most played, most performed uh, pieces. He wrote it for a Danish percussionist, but it has also been played a lot by the wonderful Scottish percussionist, Evelyn Glennie. Uh, she has, among other places, performed it at Buckingham Palace. Um, and, and you will, will hear it tonight. It's a wonderful piece. Uh, then after Daniel's piece, we will hear a, a new, new work composed last year for cello and chamber orchestra by Paul Ragnar Paulsson, uh, who is a, uh, an Icelandic composer who started his career as a guitarist in a rock band and then decided uh, he wanted to compose classical music and uh, studied in Tallinn, in Estonia. He completed his, his doctorate there at the conservatory not, not too many years ago. Uh, and he composed this piece for Sajun Thorsteinsdottir, who is the, the, the soloist tonight. And this is a co-commission by the LA Philharmonic and the uh, Norddeutsche, the, the Northern German uh, Chamber Orchestra. It was premiered in the new, brand new Elbphilharmonie Concert Hall in Hamburg uh, in February. And this is its second performance. Uh, the title of the piece is Quake. Uh, which uh, is actually, I think, a, a very appropriate title for, for a collaboration between California and Iceland. Uh, we are both uh, places that know a thing or two about seismic activity. Um, and the inspiration for this piece actually came from an Icelandic novel that was published a few years ago called The Big Quake. Uh, by uh, a woman called Öður Jónsdóttir, 
she is, you're going to think we're all related when I say this. It's a cliche, but it's true. Um, she is the granddaughter of Iceland's most famous novelist, Halldór Laxness, who won the Nobel Prize in 1955. Uh, and she's also a wonderful, wonderful novelist. And in this book uh, called The Big Quake, there is a passage that when Pauk, the composer, read it, he said, I immediately knew I had to turn this into music somehow. Uh, and I will read it for you. It says, for a thousand years, tension amassed in the lava, only to break apart in the blink of an eye during a great quake when the rock under my feet ruptured and fossils and silvery crystals broke through the surface, events long past entombed in age-old laws of minerals before unknown geysers erupted and everything that had been became something new. The landscape would never be the same. I stare into the abyss, into the chasm in my own life, and hear it shattering all around me. Um, so the idea here is, I suppose, to, to represent uh, a, an earthquake, but also uh, the sense of uh, something that is maybe first perceived as a very sudden, very short, violent outbreak, but then obviously an earthquake has a very long prehistory that we don't notice. So that is sort of the idea that he's working with in this piece, that, that it may seem sudden, but actually there's a, there's a longer history to it. Uh, in terms of the music, you will hear a lot of, I suppose, the obvious musical signs for quaking. Uh, there are a lot of trills in this piece. There are a lot of tremolos of string players going up and down very fast. There's a lot of rumbling percussion. Uh, so the, the, the sense of the piece is very much that, that he's, he's giving us this, this quaking idea. But also what I find very beautiful is that uh, at the very beginning and at the very end, and sometimes in between too, uh, there's a wonderful stillness. Uh, he creates these moments that are very calm, but also maybe a little bit eerie. And I don't know, maybe most of us here have experienced earthquakes. I'm guessing we have. Uh, and I at least find that these moments, the silence right before and right after an earthquake, are some of the scariest, but also some of the most somehow strangely beautiful moments uh, that one can experience. Uh, and I think the ending of this piece is, is absolutely wonderful. The, the way that he, he brings this stillness after the quake uh, is, is, is absolutely wonderfully done. Um, then, after intermission, we have a new work, a world premiere by Thuridur Jonstotir. Uh, it is called Cylinder 49, and it has quite an, an interesting story that I want to, to share with you. Uh, the inspiration for this piece comes from a field recording of Icelandic folk music that was made in 1920. Uh, Back in the 1910s, 1920s, you may know this if you, you've read about Bela Bartók, for example, in Hungary. Uh, ethnomusicologists and people who were interested in folk musics of the world uh, wanted to use technology, other than just writing things down by hand, wanted to use technology to actually preserve the actual singing. And Thomas Edison had devised a recording device called uh, a wax cylinder. So you had a cylinder made out of soft wax, and on that was engraved 
the, the piece that was being sung, and you could play it a few times, but the, the cylinder actually wore off pretty quickly, so you could only play it a certain number of times before it just self-destructs, essentially. Um, and so there was an Icelandic amateur musician called Jón Björn Gíslason in 1920 who went around and, and recorded a few of these cylinders. Uh, they are now stored uh, in, in Reykjavik, and this, the cylinder with this particular song that, that she uses as the inspiration for this piece is cylinder number 49, so hence the title of the piece. Um, the singing uh, on this cylinder is very typical of, of Icelandic folk singing. It's a genre that we call rimur, which essentially refers to the, the, the literary genre. Uh, the, the obvious direct translation is rhymes. Uh, these used to be sort of long epic poems that were recited to very simple music uh, and have a history going back to the Middle Ages, essentially. Um, and so this is a, a very short example. It's a very simple tune that is sung a few times through, and I want to play it now for you. Uh, you won't hear this in the concert. You hear a little bit of, of singing. I'll get back to that later. Um, but you won't really hear this, this actual cylinder. Um, he starts by telling us the name of the singer. I'll tell you the whole thing. So, you know, I guess that's, that's uh, good information to know. And then he, he starts his singing. Harald Stefansson. inspired uh, Thürir, at least as much as the actual tune that is being sung, is the idea of how we tend, when we listen to these old recordings, to uh, try to listen beyond this very noisy surface of the recording to something that is somehow behind it and that is very hard to, to grasp. Um, and so this is, in a way, much more a piece of music about the noise as it is about the actual tune. Uh, and it, it raises this, this interesting question, I think, of you know, what if the sound that we are trying to filter out in our listening is actually just as interesting as the sound that we're trying to hear? Um, so essentially, she has a, a chamber orchestra and a choir that are making the background noise all the time. Um, and she also has some electronic sampling of the actual noise coming from this recording. Um, she has a percussionist 
playing teacups, um, which I think is, a, is an absolutely brilliant idea because often at the end of these cylinders, the singer will stop singing uh, and the cylinder will, will keep going for a while. Uh, so you have this sort of circular sound somehow. And so the percussionist stirs with a spoon in a teacup in a circle, and that sort of creates that sound that is the very end of the piece. Um, towards the end, the, the choir sings a, a snippet of this actual tune uh, in order to create this, this sense of, of something that is, you know, we're trying to hear it, but it's distorted and it's muffled, right? We don't hear it clearly. The choir sings into teacups. So they all have teacups to their face, and they sing into the teacups. So it actually sounds surprisingly much like the man on this recording. Um, I think it's a, it's a brilliant idea. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, and then the final piece on the program is called Object of Terror by Atli Ingolfsson. Uh, I should tell you just uh, you know, for fun, uh, Atli and Thuri, there are a husband and wife team of, of composers, uh, we're all either related or married. Um, so, you know, that's just, you know, that's that. Um, object of Terror, um, it, it sounds like a frightening title, but it's actually inspired by the great German romantic poet Friedrich Hölderlin. Uh, many composers have been inspired in some way by his his texts and his, his fragments. There's a wonderful song cycle by Benjamin Britten, for example, but uh, many, many others. Um, and Atli in this piece was, was inspired by something that Hölderlin wrote on the, the relation of progress and decay. Uh, and he says something to the effect in a very rough translation that unconditional novelty is the object of our anxiety. Uh, and Atli rephrases this, he takes this a step further, so it's not the object of anxiety, but the object of terror, which is obviously even worse. Um, but um, I find this is, this is I, was, I was talking to Atli about this earlier, it's, it's a piece that makes its intent very clearly. There's a sort of clarity of intent in, in what he's doing that is, that is um, very, very interesting and, and wonderful. Uh, in the act of composition, he, he talks about how uh, he tried to, to fully use the, the material that he was, was uh, employing. So that, you know, it, it, it is about this anxiety of, of the new and, and using, using what you have. So for example, uh, instead of harmonic progressions that move sort of from, from one harmony to, to another, uh, certain passages have a very static quality. So sort of you know, using, using the same thing, this, this avoidance, I suppose, of new material. Um, one thing that I find also wonderful about this piece is that sometimes it, you have the sense that it's just about to settle into a, a wonderful sort of rhythmic groove, that everyone is finally sort of sinking into something that is very rhythmical and very fun. And then sort of just at the last minute, he'll, he'll, he'll take another turn and, and do something different. Um, but it is, a, it is a wonderful piece. It's a, it's a great program. Uh, thank you for coming, and I hope you enjoy tonight's concert. Thank you.